Happy Easter. My name is Janice Lilly, and this morning's scripture reading is Psalm 23. You can find it on page 428 in the Bible in the pew in front of you. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. We've been teaching through Psalm 23 each week leading up to Easter, and and now we're here. It's Easter, the true and greater Super Bowl Sunday. The sermon will be shorter because of all that's happened already, and so we can have more time to sing. But I can tell you that we're going to get to the classic Easter story of the empty tomb But we're going to get there by starting here, in Psalm 23, verse 6. We're going to start here because that's what we planned. And who doesn't love following through with a plan, right? It's so satisfying. (laughs) But the question is, why did we plan this? Why did we plan to be here in Psalm 23, verse 6, on Easter morning? We planned Easter Sunday this way because if we start here, in Psalm 23, verse 6, our understanding of the Easter story will be fuller and richer. If we start here, we'll see that rather than the Easter story being an outlier or some aberration in the big story that God is telling with his people, We'll see Easter instead for what it really is. The outworking of the story that God has always been telling. And indeed is still telling. This morning, particularly in second service, but maybe even now here, even a few that might not have gone to the Sunday school class, there may be more children in the sanctuary than normal. We've suspended Sunday school during the second hour and and some of the other ministries, and that's a wonderful thing to have the kids in here. But I'll say, if if you're a kid in here and you want to draw a picture of what we're talking about, if you're an adult and you want to draw a picture of what we're talking about here, um, we're going to be talking about the way that God chases his people, which can be a scary thing to be chased, unless it's Jesus who's chasing you. It's a good thing. Speaking of being chased, there was a time when I was a kid, and I was being chased. When I was a kid, my family moved to England for a couple years, and we moved back in the middle of fourth grade. And when I arrived at Southwest Elementary School in Jefferson City, Missouri, there was a bully named David. No connection, I assume. (laughs) And as a stereotypical bully, he seemed taller than the rest of us. Indeed, he may have been in the fourth grade more times than the rest of us. And I don't remember why, but David didn't like me. And it came to the moment where at this certain recess, he's going to get me. 
And so I was worried and afraid all day. And at the next recess, David, David, he chases me around the blacktop for a bit. And I ran for my life because I felt as though it might have depended upon it. And what David didn't know is that I had taken karate for two years. Now, I wish on this Easter morning I had a cool roundhouse story here. Uh, I don't. But, but really, it's as simple as when he was getting close to me, I just moved to the side and stuck out my leg. That's the extent of my two years of karate. <laughs> Um, and, and, and this is a strange story I know to tell on Easter. David went flying on the blacktop. Uh, I did not lead him to Christ then. That was not, I was not ready to do that at that point. But David goes flying, and uh, the teachers get involved, and it's over. But as silly as it feels now, as I was thinking about this passage and the idea of being pursued, it's the story that came back to me. I could remember the fear involved just as a young boy. Sometimes the fear of being pursued can pounce on us seemingly out of nowhere. I, I left the church office just the other week and a woman was walking her dog in the alley and as soon as I come out, the, the, the dog lunges at me and the woman yells, whoa, and the dog growls and, and, and barks. And uh, then the woman yells, stay, Hercules. <laughs> now, what I haven't told you, the dog was only four pounds. Um, so so it, 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 right, it matters what's pursuing you. The three-pound dog, not very scary. A bully? Maybe more scary. Last summer I read a book um, by a former president and he described the president's daily briefing, which essentially if you're a president, as you go to sleep at night, all the various relevant agencies assess the greatest threats that are pursuing you in this country. And then when you wake up in the morning, like we often want to be, I wish I was president. When you wake up at the morning, 8 a.m., here's your briefing. Here's all the things that are pursuing you. That would be a fearful thing. Look with me again at Psalm 23, verse 6. Look what David writes. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That word follow isn't as jarring to us as it would be to someone reading a Hebrew Bible, that word for follow is most often used in the context of military threats. Or we might say the context of a bully chasing his prey, a scared kid at a new school. You don't simply follow an enemy, you pursue, you hunt an enemy down, you put your missile lock on an enemy. A friend and pastor of mine described it to me this way 15 years ago, I still remember the way he described this word that's used for follow, as though it describes a ravenous wolf, hasn't eaten in a week, hunting for dinner. These are the ways the word is most often used in the Bible, which is why one popular English translation translates the word as pursue instead of the more traditional follow. But what, here's the question, but what according to the text hunts you down each day? Look at what it says. Surely, writes King David, goodness and mercy, God's loving kindness, shall follow me all the days of my life. Not a bully, not an enemy fighter plane, not a terrorist threat, not a ravenous wolf, but goodness and mercy. If you're a Christian, your daily briefing on Easter morning reads, Good morning, Mr. or Miss Christian. Today, the goodness and mercy of God are hunting you down. 
And tomorrow it will read, good morning, Mr. or Miss Christian. Today the goodness and mercy of God are hunting you down. Is that how you think of God? A moment ago I mentioned that if we start here on Easter in Psalm 23, verse 6, we'll see that rather than the Easter story being some aberration, this outlier in the big story that God is always telling with his people, rather we will see Easter for what it is, the outworking of the story that God has always been telling and indeed is still telling. In the beginning of the Bible, we read of Adam and Eve sinning against God. And the response of God is to pursue them. We read God say, Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, Adam, where are you? God didn't have to ask that question because, first of all, he's God. He doesn't have to ask the question. He knows where Adam is. He's hiding. But second, he didn't have to ask the question because he could have just left Adam where he was to die in his sin. But God chose to pursue to hunt Adam down. This is what I mean by saying the Easter story is the outworking of the story that God has always been telling and indeed is still telling. The story of God pursuing those who don't deserve his goodness and could not earn his mercy. Easter is the continuation, even we might say the apex of goodness and mercy pursuing sinners for their good. I think of the Apostle Paul. Paul had assumed he could earn the goodness of God by being as morally righteous as possible. Paul, he, he, he was a guy who had the perfect spiritual pedigree. He was born in the perfect home. The, we would say born in a Christian home. That's how we might have phrased it. He went to the right university, the right pastor's school. He had all of that. Paul lived so zealously, so much so that, that when he thought someone was theologically out of line, he would hunt them down. And in the process, who appeared to Paul? Jesus appeared to Paul in blinding light. Now let's be clear. At first, Jesus' pursuit of Paul didn't look like goodness and mercy hunting him down. Paul, like Adam, probably thought at first that he was being pursued by a hungry wolf. This is because when God first confronts a sinner, that confrontation might not at first feel like a confrontation with goodness and mercy. It didn't feel that way for Paul. It didn't feel that way for me. When God first started revealing himself to me, it felt as though God was there to blind me and rob me of what I treasured most. Maybe you feel the same. But there's another way to look at it. Maybe he's not blinding you, but opening your eyes. Maybe he wants you to see that you treasure the wrong things. And maybe the robbery is for your good. What feels like a robbery is God disarming you before you hurt yourself. A dozen or so years after that encounter that Paul had with Jesus, Paul would write to a church these words. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. 
The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul describes Jesus as the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Think about that. It reminds me of what we read in Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of my days. The pursuit of God is personal. Adam, where are you? You, we read in Genesis Goodness and mercy will follow me, we read in Psalm 23. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, we read in Psalm 23. The Son of God who loved me. The love of God for you is personal. The Good Shepherd is pursuing you. You may feel like he's not a good shepherd because he's blinding you and you're terrified. I get it, but I'd suggest that's probably part of how a sinner should feel. When pursued by a holy God, part. You know how Adam responded? When God went looking for him, Adam, where are you? God asks. Genesis 3.10, Adam responds, I heard you. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. An encounter with the real God that begins with fear can end with joy if you're willing to let go of what you think is valuable and let God put in your hands what he thinks is valuable. An encounter with God that begins with fear can end with joy if you let God have your sin and let him give you his Savior. An encounter with God that begins with fear can end with joy if you let God clothe your nakedness with the life of Christ and let his story become your story. His death, your death. His life, your life. We are right to think of God as high and lofty, as the one above the heavens. Indeed, as the Bible says so often, the maker of heaven and earth. And if those kind of sovereign creator God verses the, the maker of heaven and earth verses, where all that we had of God in the Bible, we would think of God not as an arm's length away, but a galaxy's length away. And we wouldn't be wrong to do so. When the Bible speaks of God as holy, this is part of what is meant. He is other. He's different. He used to use a bigger word, transcendent. And it would almost feel arrogant. It would almost feel arrogant to say something more personal, to say that Jesus lived and died and rose for me. It would almost feel arrogant to say the goodness and mercy of the Lord are following me all the days of my life because Jesus lived and dies and rose for me. But Jesus invites you to personalize his redemption, to personalize God's pursuit, not merely of all sinners, but of you. Indeed, you must. The idea of individualism, where every person thinks Christianity can be made up into whatever the person wants it to be, that, that's, a, that's a real problem. It's a real problem that so many people think they can walk with God apart from his people, apart from his church. There's a hundred verses, maybe a thousand in the Bible, that would teach Against this, God loves all his people and all his church, 
But at the same time, the salvation that connects us to God and connects us to his church, connects us to his people, begins with a personal encounter. Jesus is the kind of good shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to pursue the one, to pursue you. When Jesus was on earth, he described his own mission with these words. He said, I came to seek and save the lost. When the mercy of God hunts you down, he's doing exactly what he always does. And so rather than the Easter story being an aberration or a strange outlier in the big story that God is telling with his people, Easter is the outworking of the story that God has always been telling and indeed is still telling. God is the kind of God who would orchestrate your life so that you would be here this morning. We see in the Easter story the ways that God has done everything so that you can be with him happy forever. Or to use the words of Psalm 23 verse 6, we see in the Easter story the ways that God has done everything so that you can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Son of God was born, lived, died, rose again. And the very first thing he did after he rose, when the tomb was empty, he appeared to a woman who loved him. And Jesus told her to go get the men who also loved him, but were the same men who fled from him when he needed him most. On Easter morning, Jesus pursued sinners who had failed him. And he still is. And that's good news. For just a moment as we close, I'd love to, to just blow away all the pageantry. And the extraneous aspects of Easter. That of families and meals and eggs and all of that because while they can be helpful to a point, it can also become a distraction. To get right down to the matter, some of you have been running from God. And he's following you. And it's not a race you want to win. Surrender to the goodness and mercy of God that has been hunting you down. Don't wait till next summer or next Easter or next next, whatever. The goodness and mercy of God have followed you to this moment and he's not here to kill you, but to save you. And if it feels like he's taking something from you, he probably is. But that's so he can fill your hands with more of him. And for those of you who have walked with God for many years, some of you have, and the trials in your life are such that you need to be reminded that the tomb is empty and he's coming again. And even though many things in this world may conspire against you, your daily briefing on this Easter morning reads, good morning, Mr. or Miss Christian. Today, the goodness and mercy of God are hunting you down. Because Jesus lived and died and rose, he's making all things new, including you. And through all of your days, he will pursue you until the day when you dwell in his house forever.
Would you join me in prayer as we invite the worship team back up? Heavenly Father, I pray this morning for those here who for all the joy of Easter, all of the exuberance and song, feel perhaps threatened because you're encroaching on what felt like their space. Lord, I pray that you would overwhelm hearts with a sense of your goodness and your loving kindness. And Lord, I pray for those this morning that that feel as though the cares of this world are really what's pursuing us. Through the singing and the preaching and the baptisms and the reading of scripture and the prayers that are prayed, would you show yourself strong? And the one who sits on the throne of the universe, ruling and reigning until you come again. We pray these things in Christ's awesome name.